This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. From award-winning masterpieces to festival-fresh gems, movies you've been dying to see or ones you've never heard of before, there's always something new to discover. For a limited time only, during the Cannes Film Festival, you can try Mubi for three months for just $1. Till the end of the festival on May 25th, go to mubi.com slash filmcomment to claim the offer. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmcomment for 90 days of hand-picked cinema for just $1. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Abel Ferrara's Pasolini. An official selection of the 52nd New York Film Festival, the film stars Willem Dafoe in a performance The Guardian calls superb. Pasolini is now in theaters. If you're a fan of French cinema, and not just because Cannes is on, the new streaming service Ovid.tv offers a wide selection from classic docs to contemporary political dramas by directors such as Chantal Ackerman, Claire Denis, Philippe Garel, Chris Marker, and Jean Rouche. Ovid is available at www.ovid.tv and on iOS and Android devices, Roku, Fire, and Apple TV. Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. Uh, my name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is another edition of our Can podcasts. It's day four, I want to say. Uh, they're beginning to blur together in the most pleasurable of ways, of course. And we have another full day of movie going today. Uh, yesterday, we talked about Baccarat and some other films, and we'll return to Baccarat a little today. But uh, I think it's time to introduce my guest for today, who is... Ella Bittencourt. Uh, yes, I've written for Film Comment, I'm mostly a film critic, although I do some curating and selection committee and consulting work from time to time. And I guess I'm a Polish-American, formerly New Yorker, or always New Yorker at heart, but currently based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So we, we've been dutifully covering all of the competition films, uh, and the one we missed so far is Beanpole, mm-hmm. which I will start off by saying was A, a movie I was very interested in seeing because it's the director of Closeness, which is a movie in Uncertain Regard uh, two years ago. Actually, this is an Uncertain Regard as well. I don't know why I started talking about it as a competition title. Um, but at any rate, it's uh, Kantemir Balagov, and that's A. B, I just think it has a terrible title. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> we were debating that. Ti- yeah, I, I actually, I had no idea what that title alluded to. Yeah. But, I mean, know. but as soon as I saw her, yes. somehow it worked. Because I said, oh, yes. immediately, oh, my God. Yeah. She's the beanpole. She is the beanpole. <laughs> Without any doubt. Yeah. yeah, when she appears on screen. So let's talk about the plot and the setting a little. Ella, take it away. Um, sure. So I guess we're in the uh, war devastated, and this is World War II. So it's 1945, and war devastated Leningrad. So obviously, sort of the historical landscape is the huge, the enormous sacrifices that the Soviets um, 
contributed during World War II. Mm. I think they pretty much had the greatest casualties of all nations. Right. I mean, maybe um, if you count Poles and Jews together, considering concentration camps, maybe not. But outside of that, yeah. certainly. So that's the background. And I guess the story of two young women who we are still debating if they are yeah. sisters, possibly cousins, possibly just roommates. But they have this intriguing um very intense bond mm -hmm. that at times is also, um, I don't know, borderline um, domination, certainly um, mm. manipulation one of each sure. other, but also um, bordering, borderline, at least for Beanpole, who's our title character, she seems to be basically in love yeah. with Ia, yeah. the other young woman. No, would you say? No? Yeah, I mean, that. yeah, it, it, it does sort of become comic more manifest at one point yeah she does seem to to be obsessed uh, with with right. her and i mean the, the movie kind of starts out with immediately you, you said this domination relationship immediately this this kind of narrative gambit basically which is that uh beanpole is looking after a child that i kind of assumed was hers at first right. i guess you're supposed to supposed um to. and this happens in the first 10 minutes so i'll go ahead and say that a beanpole has some form of epilepsy it, it's more the kind where one goes into like a fugue mm. state rather than a seizure which is actually a post-traumatic oh is it post-traumatic yeah, she has some kind oh, of okay. which is meant to be i mean it's definitely looking like a pre-epileptic thing yeah. but it's also meant to be post-traumatic because of the war oh okay so yeah so she yeah she has that she has that and during one of those episodes uh she she has an episode while she is like on I don't know hugging the the child and then it smothers the child, uh, and then when Ia comes back from the front or wherever she is, she's at, she's not at the front I guess if it's after the war, so she's at some. But it's immediately after. Immediately after, so it's understood that she it, is coming. It, it from takes the a front while. Line. It's a slow train, um, <laughs> and, um, and then then you realize that the 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 the, the, um, the kid is actually Ia's kid, and so Ia is not is you know is devastated, and then that's. That's the leverage, basically, which right away was a problem for me. Like, Ia is like, okay, now you're going to have a, a, a child to... to right. To, well, to she finds out that. that she cannot have any. She herself finds out, seems that yeah. she actually already knew that. Yeah. Or maybe not have... Either, ha either didn't acknowledge it... Or yeah. or wasn't told right. that I think as a result of the way that she had C-section or whatever else happened to right. her during that she was at, uh, yeah. procedure, she was never going to be able to have another one. Right. Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there's it just yeah. So the movie just starts off with this baseline of just deep loss and yeah. from from the war, compounded by this immediate right. death of of the child, and. Things don't really get any brighter from that point. I mean, no, there's like a little episode where, you know, they, which is also partly born out of desperation, where they go out on a, like a fling with a couple of guys in, in a car. Which is adorable because that's the only yeah. part where we have a little bit of, you're right, a little bit of brightness and lightness. And just yeah. the fact that the, the the young man who's meant to play kind of the suitor, but of course yeah. they start off with the scene of awkward sex. That's the idea. Right. There's the basic pickup. They right. kind of fool around. but And only then begins some kind of an awkward courtship, which yeah. consists of basically an economic exchange of him bringing fruit and, yeah. and her telling him to bring more <laughs> fruit and that all being quite geeky and fun. Yeah. No? Yeah, I mean, that that is it. Adorable. I mean, it's 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 yeah, it's very transactional at first. Um and yeah, it is adorable and he the keys kind of a 
you know, he's, I don't know, not going to win a standard beauty contest, the, the, the guy, I think, right? I mean, he's, he's a little, I don't know. He's, I think he's played up as being a bit dorky, as, he, as I think he said. Right. And so that's developing. And then meanwhile, yeah, Bean Pole is, is still, I don't know, finding her own way. And they were, oh, here's another whole layer of miserableness to the movie is that they, is that Bean Pole works in a veteran's hospital, basically, so just filled with the, the dead, the dying yeah. and shell-shocked and near dead and, and crippled. Uh, so that's, that's kind of your locales. It's between yeah. that and their, their cramped apartment and, that that's where it is for much of the movie. Yeah, and that's the part that I that I actually truly loved and found fascinating because for he's a very young filmmaker, right? He's in his twenties. Yeah, right? late twenties must be. Late twenties. So for a very young filmmaker to pick up this topic because it seems like Eastern Europe is having its own kind of renaissance mm -hmm. of fascination with World War II movies mm -hmm. and war movies. But more generally, at least from like a right-wing cultural perspective, there's a very strong in interest in just these kind of movies that will deliver patriotic, nationalistic pride. And, uh, there are, and uh -huh. I noticed actually, oddly enough, there are in the market, for example, in Cannes this year, there are quite a number of, of Russian films mm -hmm. and they all kind of have some kind of war theme or there's Sobibor, there's mm. uh, there's Conquering of Siberia, there's, I don't know, mm. there's another Leningrad film. So there's, there's certainly a lot of them and I don't know, there's some kind of like a, you know, in, in, in Warsaw, for example, we now have a war museum where we like mm. kind of retell the uprising, the Warsaw uprising uh. day by day and all the heroic things that happened. And so there's a kind of a certain spin, mm. which a lot of young people and particularly people who are from conservative circles are getting into. So for him to make this film, to be so young and to make this film that totally undercuts this yeah. heroism and is just showing you the war, but only at, not as a scene of battle and as a heroic effort, but only afterwards as a total and complete emotional, psychological, physical decrepitude. Yeah. I, I thought that was really, um, that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, it is an interesting moment to, to, to focus on just of total exhaustion and loss and not like making any, not making any promises of a brighter yeah. day at all. Um, Although I would agree with you that that idea that Ia immediately has in her mind, I mean, it almost seems like that in itself is some kind of post-traumatic thing with her. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? This kind of insistence, because otherwise, had we not assumed that this is coming out of the experience of war and of absolute yeah. death and that her partner already died on the front, had, had yeah. not been, and, and now it's his child that's also dead. Right. So had it not been coming out of that, we would have... I think I would have also said what what you're saying that yeah. it's just kind of too predetermined, it's kind of just too right. over the top. This constant insistence on you're gonna have my baby, you're gonna have my baby. Yeah. But anyway, the but I think this decrepitude. I also liked how this decrepitude translates into decrepitude and a certain melancholia. How that translates mm -hmm. into how the film looks. I mean, I yeah. liked the the claustrophobia. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I read somewhere that this was shot with. Um, with a handheld camera, which would you have, would you have been able to say from looking at it uh, that this is a film shot with a handheld? Not really. A handheld in what sense? Like, or what kind of, like a handheld Well, I think because apparently, or? well, I don't know, but I yeah. mean, that's the, I read something in, in IndieWire that that's the language, that, that that's what the director hmm. said because they were in very small spaces sometimes and wanted oh, okay. to have a lot of flexibility. 
So I'm going to ask him about that, definitely. Sure. In the interview to just kind of find out. Yeah. And apparently use the kind of lenses that would give him the texture, the kind of historical texture that yeah. he wanted, but at the same time use the equipment that would let him move around in small spaces. And you definitely feel it because that's how he's able to you know, have a lot of maneuvering space and be very following the actors very mm. closely. But you can tell that some of these spaces are very kind of tight. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, technically makes makes sense. And and actually, this might be a good moment to talk to talk about his first feature, because uh, that's relevant for, for that. His first feature, Closeness, uh, which also kind of has a, a jaundiced view of war, uh, which crops up in it. It's, it's also about it's also about a very claustrophobic family situation, actually. Uh, a young woman who is, uh, I guess her sister is, I'm gonna get this wrong now, but. I think it is a sister, right? Her sister's getting married, yeah. Right. Her sister's getting married. Um, her own family is, 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 a, is a Jewish, on, part of a Jewish enclave, and they're marrying another minority whose name I can't remember. Um, and is this in the Caucasus, or, or I forget. Or, some region that he's from, right? Yeah, I yeah. Think, I think you're right. I'm, and so, and then also the, the, the woman who's the focus of the movie, who's played by an actress, I wish I could remember her name because she really has a wonderful like energy and, and liveliness and unpredictability. But yeah, I mean, closeness, uh, you know, also had a kind of claustrophobic feel, a lot of like sort of cramped shots um, and cramped domestic spaces. And the, the plot itself is like a, is like a kidnapping plot. Um, and then there's also like the Chechen war is in there. There was a, a somewhat controversial use of um, murder footage. And uh, so that's kind of the, and that movie may be very excited for the second feature. Although I have to say that I found this one a little disappointing. Just it's, you know, maybe the first one spoils you because they have this dynamic figure at the center of it. And part of the point of this one is that they're, they're totally stuck. But even so, I just felt like the, the, like the dramaturgy basically of this one it's he had kind of one way of filming and that was intense two people like grappling in a, in a scene you know and and a lot of stare-offs you know and it just got monotonous for sure. me sure no i understand that um i guess i would also say that i mean it's a very bleak film and it is about obsession but and maybe mm. and certainly some critics have made that point and I mean, I would concede that he's sometimes being cruel towards um, these two female figures or maybe the way he's he's treating all of his characters. But on the other hand, I mean, kind of intrigued that this is based on the book of Svetlana Alexeyevich and this is uh -huh. the Nobel Prize winner who... Mm. Um, you know, won the Nobel Prize after her um, remarkable writing on the tragedy in Chernobyl with the oh, okay. atomic disaster, right, with the nuclear uh -huh. plant disaster. And then she wrote um, Secondhand Time on kind mm -hmm. of the quintessential Ro Russian nostalgia and uh. kind of uh, bleakness of yeah. post-Soviet and Russian life at large. And so this is yet one more book in which, and she's kind of an oral historian when she goes around and gathers usually multiple multiple stories that are just told to her uh -huh. and she transcribes them without obviously in a in this kind of almost folktale mode you know when there isn't a lot of editing there's a lot of flow of language and so here I'm assuming that this is a book where you have multiple stories of various women uh -huh. and the idea is that you're going to show you know the contribution of these women to the war which is very rarely told so yeah. that's his starting point so I'd be very curious kind of how he yeah. 
you know, how he funneled it into these two women and what yeah. of it he kind of imposed and what of it he kind of found. I mean, I'm yeah. very curious because at some level you can tell, and I do think that this that's kind of thanks to the book and to the research behind it, that at the same time, as bleak as it is, it is on some level a story about compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, like that whole thread with um, the man who's essentially paralyzed and isn't going to have any, the young man who's lying in bed and he's paralyzed and he's never oh. going to have a life. And right, even if right, he returns, right. I mean, they find his wife and all that. But yeah. I mean, I mean, there's basically a moment of euthanasia in there and yeah. euthanasia. And it's, but at the same time, it's a, it's a moment of extreme compassion, both yeah. on the part of the doctor and the nurses who play part and Beanpole herself. No. So as strangely catatonic as she might be at the same time, she's, she's, you know, she's definitely a figure capable of kind of of selfless love and so i I think what i truly love about the film is the work that he did with these two actresses and their work as actresses although i agree with you like the dramaturgy gets a little repetitive yeah but i mean they're very young actors Mm -hmm. and this is very beautifully acted i think while the masters of international cinema grace the closet movie brings the best of can to you this month, stream highlights from the festival's past with movie's annual Can Takeover series. This year's impressive lineup includes Palme d'Or winner Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, as well as Amores Perros from this year's jury president Alejandro González Iñárritu, plus career bests from Can heavyweights Gus Van Sant, Hirokazu Koreeda, Takeshi Miike, the Darden Brothers, and many more. Plus, if you sign up during the festival, you'll get three months for just $1. From now until May 25th, go to movie.com slash film comment to claim the offer. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film comment for 90 days of great cinema for just $1. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Abel Ferraro's Pasolini. An official selection of the 52nd New York Film Festival, the film focuses on the final hours of Pierre Paolo Pasolini's life and stars Willem Dafoe in a performance The Guardian calls superb. Writing for Film Comment, Manu Yanez Murillo describes it as an enlightening hall of mirrors that examines the intricate connections between Pasolini's oeuvre, personality, and worldview. Pasolini is now playing at Metrograph in New York and coming soon to select cities. Ovid.tv is the new streaming platform cinephiles have been waiting for. Counterpunch calls it indispensable. And from now until May 31st, you can save 50% off the monthly subscription price for three months if you go to www.ovid.tv and use the discount coupon code CAN, C-A-N-N-E-S, at checkout. You'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for the first three months of your subscription. Yeah, I, it's 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 really interesting what you're saying. You were just saying about the uh, the oral historian approach. I, I mean, I would kind of long for that kind of mm. more flowing aspect. I think it was mm-hmm. just something that was schematic mm-hmm. about the way their relationship is sketched yeah. out, and also the way the the, the story is, is is set up. And no, but, I get yeah, it. I guess yeah. I guess the film that conveys the multiplicity of voices and this kind of communal experience much better is Bakurao, No. Because, oh, um, there you go. In that case, very nice transition. I handed to you. No. Um, well, yeah, Baccarat, which I, you know, uh, which we, I know you already talked about. We so talked we about, don't but need I, to talk about. But no, but I definitely want to hear, um, hear which Ella, what you have to say about it, um, since, uh, yeah, you've, you know, followed his work closely, and uh, yeah, what, what was your feeling ab- ab- about it? I just thought this was such a bold and exciting film, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really dying to speak with him about 
you know, um, like how he even decided that location because what they call the Sahtan or the Midlands or whatever you want to call that, um, this kind of very dry land, which he made the decision. I mean, normally it's always portrayed as this completely parched part of Brazil because it's away mm. from the water. And often they, you know, they have... Um, they have droughts and stuff, but he also made it a point of insert some greenness in there. So he's definitely playing with it. But it's just that in the history of Brazil, usually the Midlands play such an important part because mm. that's where some of the bloodiest rebellions happened oh, wow. at the beginning of, you know, when Brazil was becoming a country. And and um, and it's so prominent in Brazilian cinema. So you've got Galber Rocha and you, you have Vida Secas yeah. and you have all this history. So for him to go there, I'm just kind of intrigued, you know, considering that he said in the press conference that it took them 10 years to really come to this film and to finally re mm. make this film. And that there was kind of back and forth with Juliana, we really want to make it, and discussions mm. about that. Did they talk about wanting to enter into that imagi imaginary or did he have a personal experience with this? I mean, I'm just really curious because it's so beautifully yeah. done. And for me, the figure of... I guess the the bandit or whatever mm -hmm. the bandido yeah. who's again a, a contemporary reading on what would they have is Lampion which were these bandits these kind mm -hmm. of you know who stayed in the Midlands and are these historical figures who are just kind of the ultimate outlaws uh -huh. and extremely violent and extremely brutal but also somehow completely em embraced in the folk culture mm -hmm. as this kind of counter government um, so. Uh, he's incredible, didn't you think? This character, just incredible. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. I have never seen that actor before, uh -huh. so I actually I don't know his work, but I thought yeah. remarkable. I mean, him yeah. out outfitted with this kind of very yeah, I don't know, and 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 at the and then at the same time because he's like a mix of I don't know he's like a mix of almost he's like a spoof of someone who could have been as a bandido as a bandit and like as a gangster and mm -hmm. you know the city of god kind of film but at uh -huh. the same time he's completely local and he's completely embedded in that yeah. in that society and and that particular village has something in the sense that the 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 class boundaries are very fluid you know like middle class and mm -hmm. and the whorehouse and there isn't this kind of priggishness which you can see sometimes in mm. the uh, latin american societies in the cities this is completely opposite of that there uh -huh. it's just so it's it's really beautifully done and at the same yeah. time so many of these figures are larger than life like precisely yeah. i forget his name i forget if his name is like lungo or something but the the, the bandit or the the outlaw oh yeah um and at the same time, they like spoof themselves now because yeah, when he yeah. when they go all out and cut off the heads, and then somebody says, "Oh, I think he maybe overdid it," and someone <laughs> else says, "No, I don't think so." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. I no. mean, yeah. I don't know. But he's a great figure. He he really manages. Yeah, no, he's a great figure, and and I mean, in a way, yeah. the prefeito, the mayor, as well, is kind of this archetypal caricature of of which unfortunately there are many in brazil in real life mm -hmm. you know and coming out with this whole sound system to the periphery and kind of having himself driven through those towns and yeah, yeah. i think it's i mean that scene where they all kind of evacuate and hide behind yeah. their houses is just genius yeah for sure um it's kind of you know it, it's almost like the the only action the only resort that is left to them is to deny him mm. the illusion that he's having a conversation yeah
Yeah. So I don't know. That's what I have and to say about Bakura. But yeah. I guess I have more questions for Kleber than things to say at this point. It's yeah. still early. Oh, actually, that, that reminds me. One thing we were wondering about when we were talking about it yesterday is is his his co director. Yeah. If you, I don't know if you can tell us a so bit about that. So I don't that. know. I, I confess that I don't know Juliano's work that well. It's mm-hmm. Julian Dornelis. Um, as I understand, and that was also a question I have for them, as I understand Juliano has worked in uh, in in with genre before more. Mm-hmm. I think he's done some shorts. Okay. But yeah, I don't I don't think that there's a feature of his that mm-hmm. would have been on like the festival yeah. circuit, or maybe maybe I'm wrong. But um, when I looked it up, that was my impression. Yeah. But I had a sense that he's also bringing in this kind of robust push- passion for genre, mm-hmm. and that that's mm-hmm. something that they yeah. share because um, Mendoza clearly um, loves the work of John Carpenter, yeah. and I think people were posting on Twitter him writing about seeing the. Yeah. The Prince of Darkness and so on, and and he's now the uh, head of the film department at an important institute in in Brazil, Instituto Moreira Sales, which is in Rio oh. de Janeiro and in São Paulo, oh, and wow. they were showing recently John Car- Carpenter oh, really? films. So yeah, <laughs> that's great. I think he was kind of like you yeah. know prepping himself. For yeah. The con. <laughs> yeah. No, and then yeah, then yeah. he was then yeah, John Carpenter was honored yeah. here. Yeah. As well. I think we each have things we're going to run off to shortly. Um, but before then, we could just cover one more thing, I think, that, that one more movie that which, uh, Ella, you've seen, uh, I have not, um, which was the opening film of Critics Week, and that is Litigante. Yeah, it's the, by a young Colombian filmmaker, Franco Loli, and um, he had a film, it may have been two or three years ago, here in, on Sartan Regard as well. So, he, so he's coming back with this film, Litigante, and um, and I guess at the at the film premiere, at the opening of Samantha La Critique, he was saying that this is a very personal film for him, um, and um, it... And it it like like his other film it has um, it has like a cast that's composed of non-professional actors I think mostly but then there are some professional actors as well mm-hmm. um, and so it's a story about a mother who's an elderly woman who's dying who has terminal cancer mm-hmm. um, and who as I understood is a, was a very successful lawyer and um, mm-hmm. and of her and of her uh, two daughters and one of the daughters the older daughter is very like her mother in many ways, so that creates a lot of tension. They are both successful lawyers. Um, it's just that um, the the older daughter is working for the uh, the public sector for construction companies, and apparently there's some kind of a scandal about to blow up about you know them using funds inappropriately and so on and so on. So there are questions of kind of ethical questions, which in Latin America, of course, uh, with the kind of scandals we had in Brazil, but I'm sure also in other countries where public funds are just kind of like America, or construction funds or America it happens totally, everywhere totally free of, of free right of sure 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 so. and so is Europe right? <laughs> but I mean um, so I guess to all of us um, it, it kind of rings rings true but anyway but it's mostly focused on so that's the part of litigante I mean in the sense that it's got this legal meaning but I think it's also because the mother and daughter are like in this constant bickering fight okay. over <laughs> who's right and who's who's more upright and you know what law and ethics are good for and so on and so on mm-hmm. and so the um, they're kind of locked in this battle which then becomes 
more poignant but also darker and darker because the mother the elderly woman is clearly dying and mm -hmm. so they you know they they attempt some kind of reconciliation but it's almost impossible till the very end yeah um so but i mean uh, what i what i like about his work and and there's a bit of lightness is the way that he works intensely also with uh, with the actresses and mm -hmm. so there are a lot of close-ups i mean in a way like being pulled there can be this kind of emotional claustrophobia because we're locked mm -hmm. into like being pulled there's also probably a problem of not always cutting soon enough and mm -hmm. and kind of having these longish protracted takes which maybe could have been um, edited a little bit more but I don't know he has a beautiful way of of working with um, with the children as well and there's oh. a child in this film who mm -hmm. kind of um, observes the this kind of feminine landscape of constant struggle but but adds a certain fluidity or I don't know lightness I guess to the film so it's really lovely mm. and, I, and I think it's a I think it's an accomplished second film you know that's mm -hmm. working very much closer to the to the fictionalized biography kind of you mm -hmm. know the fiction non-fiction borderline um w where the the visual language is maybe not like in unlike in beanpole is is mm -hmm. not is not particularly striking but but mm -hmm. at the same time it's got that cinema verite kind of feel mm -hmm. and um yeah. it's pretty well done yeah I'd say. well um that's a movie i'll have to catch up with um, and I think that's probably, uh, the time we have, I should also just give some background about where we are in case you hear like for example, <laughs> trucks, trucks backing up or wind roaring through the mic. Uh, we're basically on a, a, a press terrace that is part of the palais where a lot of the films screen here. So we are outdoors, but it is cloudy. So don't think we're having a good time. It's, it's all very terrible. Uh, and <laughs> we don't care because we're off to see more movies. That's right. We're off to see more movies. And I think next time we didn't get to Ken Loach. You didn't see the Ken Loach. No, though. I haven't seen it I yet. Say, okay. So we'll, we'll, that'll be for a future podcast. Uh, and I also saw Bertram Bonello's new film, Zombie Child. So that'll, we'll talk about that maybe our next episode. Uh, but until then, I think that's probably it for us. Uh, so tune in next time. Ella. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you. Thank you, This episode of the Film Comment Podcast was sponsored by Mubi. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Dive into Mubi's can takeover by heading to mubi.com slash filmcomment. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film comment to get three months for just $1 until May 25th. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Abel Ferrara's Pasolini. An official selection of the 52nd New York Film Festival, the film stars Willem Dafoe in a performance The Guardian calls superb. Pasolini is now in theaters. If you're a fan of French cinema, and not just because Cannes is on, the new streaming service Ovid.tv offers a wide selection from classic docs to contemporary political dramas by directors such as Chantal Ackerman, Claire Denis, Philippe Carrel, Chris Marker, and Jean Rouche. Ovid is available at www.ovid.tv and on iOS and Android devices, Roku, Fire, and Apple TV. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Angie. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. 
Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.